Smith, and this is more than one lesson, episode 108. I'm uh, back from Comic Con. Oh, no, I guess we already are back from Comic Con. I forget. Uh, we put that uh, Shakespeare in Love episode up last week. So, uh, okay. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed the last two minisodes. We're going to try and do two full length episodes uh, in a row uh, to make up for that. So, we'll see how that goes. I want to apologize to everybody in advance uh, before the episode really gets started. My energy level is very low, and it's been uh, something of a rough week, so I'm going to try and uh, charge on ahead, and I'm going to do so with the help of my very enthusiastic co-host, Josh Long. Josh. Hey, Tyler. Hello, Josh. How are you? I'm doing good. I feel like it would have been more fun if you like really had played up the energy and just really gone for it. Did I not do that? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess. Considering how often (laughs) you do let out a notable yawn while we are recording. (laughs) uh, I don't do it on the mic, though. Although Not anymore. I might have one or two times. Yeah. (laughs) And then there was once, this was several months ago, maybe even a year ago. I remember listening back to an episode and just hearing you like, "Uh uh-huh. Like you actually (laughs) responded (laughs) mid-yawn. It's like, oh, come on, man. Like, yeah. I feel like I need to explain people already to people this episode, like this podcast is for sleepy people. It's not, it's not a reflection on the actual podcast. It's more a reflection on me. Cause that just happens to me. Yeah. I just yawn sometimes. You get sleepy. Yeah. You well, it's cause I don't have enough Especially oxygen going to my brain. Apparently that's why you, uh, why you yawn. Yeah. So does that coincide with people being tired? I don't know. Yeah. I like the idea of the contagious yawn. That's so strange yeah. to me. We're just, because if that's what it is, like, oh, your body is responding to not getting enough oxygen to your brain. And then someone else sees it and says, you know what? I don't think I'm getting enough oxygen. <laughs> it's like an envious brain. <laughs> well, what about me? Yeah. Come on, mouth. Let's get to it. It's, I, I'm just thinking about it now, and I'm like, I think I need to yawn. Oh, there's no question. I feel like I need to yawn. And the, <laughs> and the, uh, the listeners themselves are undoubtedly yawning right now. Yeah. So, okay. If not asleep. So, okay. Um, this uh, episode is not one of our usual format episodes in which we discuss a newer film and contrast it with an older film. Uh, this is going to be one of our like Last Temptation of Christ episodes, our Man for All Seasons episode, in which we talk about one movie that's a little bit older, uh, in this case about 14, 15 years old, and uh, just talk about that and the themes explored in it. So, uh, But before we get into that, I will mention my, uh, for lack of a better term, inspiration for getting into uh, this topic. Because this movie is one that I know I knew I'd wanted to do for a long time, uh, but I never was quite sure when to pull the trigger on it. Uh, and then, of course, we went to Comic-Con. And 
if you've gone to Comic-Con or any kind of major event uh, in Southern California, and maybe elsewhere, I don't know, you will see what I refer to as the yellow signs. Um, I've seen them outside baseball games. I've seen them outside WonderCon and Comic-Con. And what they are is a group of Christians. This is not a Fred Phelps kind of situation. This isn't, you know, like genuine just bile being spewed by people. Um, but it's a, a group of Christians who hold these yellow signs and they say, you know, like something to the effect of uh, humble yourself before God. God hates sin. You know, a lot of them sort of, say repent yeah. or something to that effect. Repent yeah. sinner. They're all things that that I agree with, you know, that uh, we should repent and that God doesn't like sin and that, uh, in fact, God hates sin. Uh, so I can't really, from a theological standpoint, argue with them, except they are – if they are acknowledged at all by the group of, in the, in the case of Comic-Con, 140,000 people walking by, if they are acknowledged at all, it is – with anger or um, like a, a mocking tone or something like that. Yeah. I, You'll hear people talking about them now and then. It's surprising mm-hmm. how often like you overhear other people talking about oh, them, yeah. even when they're not around. Yeah. Um, usually kind of disparagingly. Yeah. And, I mean, I can't say I blame those people. Uh, and then you'll also see certain, you know, certain uh, other people will make signs that are kind of a, a mockery of the yellow signs. Like yeah. there's one that is, that simply says Galactus is nigh. I don't know if that means anything to you. Galactus is a, uh, he's a character from the Marvel world. He is the, he devours worlds. Oh, and, uh, he wanted to come to earth, but the fantastic four fought him off because, oh, good. yeah. How could, uh, this rock monster and stretchy guy, how could they not fight off a 23 story devourer of worlds? Makes no sense to me. That's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> So they've got stuff like that, and then one was uh, someone was holding a sign that said, some, "Let's see, let's see if I can remember it." Something like, "Yellow signs make God angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry," which is a nice Hulk <laughs> reference, which I like a lot. So, uh, so it is something that, uh, and that's the thing. It's it is assumed if you're going to go to Comic Con or WonderCon or any of these other events, you will see these people outside. It's uh, kind of imp- at, le- at least the ones at Comic Con. It's impossible not to see them. I think. Yeah, they're in the midst. That's the thing because the signs are they're not at chest level. They're up on you know uh, not poles, but uh, like two by fours and stuff like that. So they're above the crowd and they are a bright yellow. Mm. So yeah, you cannot avoid them. You'll always see them. And there's one on basically every street corner. All the major crossings. Yeah, and so. And that's the thing is I don't want to be condemning of those people. In the past, I've actually spoken to them, and they actually are remarkably nice and very nuanced. And I wish that I had had at the time the presence of mind to say, do you think you're getting through to people? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I didn't want to be insulting. But that that is the question that I want to ask is I don't know how long the yellow signs have been at comic-con or how long they've been doing what they've been doing in general but i feel like i want to sit down with the leadership of this group and say i i really want you to list for me the number of people that have responded 
the way we want them to respond. Now, some would say that eliciting any kind of response is good, but I don't agree. Um, just someone saying, huh, I never thought that about, you know, I, I didn't know that God didn't like sin. But that, And that's the other thing is, who doesn't know that? Yeah, well, and no one's going to... Uh, when when their phrase is an accusation, which many of them are, no one's going to be like, "Huh, I never thought about that." Right. That's that's never the response that anyone has to an accusation is to go like, "Hmm, maybe I should examine my lifestyle." Yeah. So it is something that really bothers me, and so it it got me thinking about, uh, and I thought, oh, maybe we could do an episode about about the yellow signs and about evangelism, and that's when I realized, well, there is a movie that I've been that's been kind of on the back burner for years. That is a, a quite directly about this, uh, albeit in a slightly different way. Um, but it is about how best to reach people that are not Christian. Um, and so we are going to be talking about a movie called The Big Kahuna, which, looking at my notes, I see that I uh, there's a typo and I spelled it wrong. Sorry. Oh, um, I didn't even notice. But yeah. So The Big Kahuna is a film directed by John Swanbeck and written by Roger. Rough or Roof? Rough. Yeah. Uh, based on his play, which I think is called Hospitality Suite. Yeah. And I saw it in the theater several times for for a few reasons. One was that I, it was a film that I thought my friends should see, and they might not have seen it. They certainly weren't going to see it alone, and they might not have had anybody else to see it with. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll just go as well. So mm. I was very familiar with this film. And, and for a while, it was one, it was one of my favorite films because... Uh, there are elements to it that I really like. Um, but you actually just saw the film, so if I were to ask you to sum up the story of the film, how would you do that? Um, I was trying to remember off the top of my head what the IMDb uh, yeah. <laughs> summary was, because I was just looking at that. Um, now, in my own words, mm-hmm. I'd say it's about three businessmen who are on a... Uh, at a marketing convention, something mm-hmm. where they're trying to uh, get a big client uh, and sell him some industrial lube, mm-hmm. and they uh, the one of the three is young and inexperienced. And how, you want me to kind of go through the whole plot? Uh, sure. Or just the so one of them is younger and inexperienced, and. Uh, it becomes clearly clear early on that he's a Christian. He talks about how, you know, he believes in Jesus and, you know, he doesn't approve of one of the other, I guess he doesn't really disapprove, but he, some, one of the other characters is reading a penthouse magazine and he says, Oh, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't believe those should be purchased is what he says. Yeah. Um, uh, but so not only is he younger, he's just kind of a little green at the company. Uh, the other two guys played by Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito talk, kind of about what the they give him a little bit of a hint at to what business is like when you've been at it this long yeah um so they have a event at this hospitality suite they're trying to get this one big client and he doesn't show up and they're all upset afterwards after he hasn't showed up only to find out that he did show up and the only one who talked to him was the younger less experienced guy yeah the problem is that he didn't talk to him at all about the business partially because he didn't know who he was um, but he did talk to him about religion mm-hmm. and dogs. He talked to him for a while about dogs. Yeah. Um, mostly so, German shepherds. Mostly German shepherds. Yeah. So they then decide that, no, they find out that this client invited the the young guy to a party 
a private event. Mm-hmm. So they say, you go along to the private event, give him our cards, tell yeah. him to call us, and you know the reason we're here is to get this guy, is to sell this guy industrial lube. Mm-hmm. So you can go to the party. For the record, hang on. Industrial <laughs> lubricants. Okay. <laughs> they say Which lube, is, don't they? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure they say lubricants because there is yeah. a different connotation. <laughs> industrial lubricants means, hey, this will make your machine go better. Yeah industrial lube that Im- that implies yeah. almost like you know romantic aid lube <laughs> but it's industrial strength or industrial <laughs> sized and so uh so yeah that i don't want anyone to get it's like what are these guys selling there's a there's a an undercurrent to this this film that is no, uh, it is uh it is for uh machine and technical purposes sure. At least that I was given to understand that. Maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Maybe both. Doesn't seem like it would be that big of a market otherwise. Right. But you know what? That's it's a world I don't know much about. Who so. knows? I'm not a businessman. So anyway, um, this young man, what's the character's name? Bob. Bob. Uh, Bob goes along to the private event. He does meet and talk with the client, but he doesn't talk to him about industrial lubricants. He instead talks to him about religion and mm-hmm. Jesus. Um, yeah. And when he comes back to the hotel room to tell the other two, they are understandably upset yes. and argument ensues. Okay. So already, already you say they're understandably upset. Mm-hmm. So already I'm, I'm getting your, your opinion of the events of the film. Um, so, okay, before we get... So, that's the thing. This this deals very specifically with religion and the idea of spreading uh, spreading your faith. Uh, but it also, what I, one thing that I like is that at the, at the end of the film, Danny DeVito has a line that I will be quoting later on in which he makes it clear it's not even just about religion. That's actually too small. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bigger thing than that. It's just any time you relate to another person but you have your own agenda. You're not actually relating to them as a person. So anyway, that's, so I, I, I like that quite a bit that it, it uses the specificity of Christianity and religion, but it actually is about something, uh, even bigger than that, that I think anybody can, can relate to. So, okay. Uh, so I saw this film, I saw it in 2000. That's at least when it came to Springfield, Missouri. Uh, I was just off of uh, American Beauty Fever. How appropriate, actually, that we that we are talking about this a couple weeks after discussing American Beauty. Yeah. Um, because at that point, I think I was a big Kevin Spacey fan. I mean, at that point, I had seen Usual Suspects and LA Confidential, Swimming with Sharks, American Beauty. I mean, he was just really nailing it. And so I think I saw it for that. And, of course, I was familiar with uh, Danny DeVito in, in, in any number of films. Uh and I didn't really even know what to expect. I just went in and, uh, and at the time I flipped out when I go back and watch the film now, it's, it's directed by a first and only time director. He's never, he hasn't directed, uh, John Swanbeck. He's not directed anything since this film. Um, and it does feel like a, like maybe a first time director. And it feels like somebody who is, um, because, it, like I said, it's based on a play, so the majority of the film takes place in one hotel room over mm-hmm. the course of a, of a day or two. Yeah. And so, it, and it never quite breaks out of that. Uh, it does often feel very flat, and, um, and any time the director tries to get us out of that, whether it be 
um, in like, you know, fantasy sequences or something like that. Um, it sometimes feels forced. Yeah. Whereas movies like, for example, the, the, the film that I think is closest to this is American Buffalo. Sorry, the, this, this feels most like American Buffalo, which is also two middle-aged guys, one young guy, often talking about characters that we've ne- that we never see and will never see mm-hmm. um and primarily in one location. So it reminds me of that but uh the director of that film whose name escapes me right now Michael Carenti I believe. Um I think he does a much better job just knowing where to put the camera and knowing how to direct his actors so that even though you are I mean you're basically watching a play it never feels like that it feels mm-hmm. cinematic. This film never quite feels cinematic. Uh, in my opinion, yeah, it feels it feels a lot like a play. W- just watching it, I because I looked up some of the information about it afterwards. But just watching, I was like, this is clearly based on a play. This seems like an inexperienced director. I missed the director's name in the credits, mm. so I almost was like, is this directed by an actor? <laughs> it seemed mm. like it could have been that sort of thing. Yeah. Then I looked it up because I was curious, and sure enough, it was. And only one and only time director. There's some choices he makes that I, like you said, it's, it's feels like he's trying to do something to do something different, but there's some weird use of slow motion that seems unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Um, the fantasy scenes don't really fit in. Uh, uh, there's cutaways later to the party where Bob is meeting the, the big client and, those go on for too long and are, are not necessary. I think he's just using them to, to break up. Yeah. They're basically act breaks. Like, I mean, you can tell that if this were a play, Oh, this is where the act break would. Right. Um, yeah. So there, there are some things like that that just seem poorly thought out. Also, he, he overuses the close-ups. I thought, I feel like there are too many, too early on. Later on in the film, it's certainly called for, especially Danny DeVito's, uh, lines near the end of the film. But, uh, even in kind of the first scene where we're introducing these characters, there's somewhere we're cutting into close up and it's, it's unnecessary. Yeah. There's a la- there is definitely a language to film and the idea of using the camera, whether it be movement, lighting, uh, and then, placement Mm. and angle and then also of course editing choices you can use all of that to this sounds almost counterintuitive to almost dictate to the audience how we should be feeling or at the very least but also taking our cues from the characters and so Mm. not unlike a um, a 12 angry men or something like that where Sidney Lumet like very expertly shoots the characters over the course of the film shoots them in different angles and then gets closer and closer uh, as everything gets more and more tense. This film does feel like it should be a little bit further away. I'm fine with like a, you know, not an extreme close-up. I'm fine with the occasional close-up here and there. But at the end, as these characters really feel under the gun, they feel like the, the whole reason for coming here has been, they've been let down, they've failed, and now they're angry and there's tension. That's when you get a nice good uh, a nice yeah. close up in there and so there has to be a reason and those early yeah. ones don't feel like there's any reason like there, there are moments too when it it was like a cutaway to Danny DeVito when the other two are talking and he kind of hangs his head and what the actor's doing is is fine because he's just kind of frustrated with uh maybe how 
how forceful Kevin Spacey's being mm-hmm. or how these two aren't getting along or something like that. But the way it cuts into that makes the moment seem like it's more more important than it actually is. Yeah. And you think, what's, what's the big deal? Why is he... And it, it's funny, it makes it seem like Danny DeVito is overacting when he's really not. Right. Yeah, and so... And I will... So, yeah, inexperienced director. Uh, as far as the material itself, um, it's not bad. I think... I, I feel like I would enjoy it as a play. Um, and uh, and I like a lot of the writing. Uh, in some cases, it's it's maybe a little bit on the nose, but in other cases, it's very much not. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that winds up undercutting it. Uh, there are specific yeah. moments of of real sp- where the writing is really special. I think there's a there's an interesting monologue towards the end of the film where Danny DeVito is talking about a dream he had, mm. and. And the dream is sort of about God, but God's got a big lion head and God is actually afraid and Danny DeVito has to assure him. And it's first off, I like the way it's I just like the structure of how it's written and and also how it's how it's played. Danny DeVito almost plays it like a nine year old boy recounting his dream. But um, but also the details of it seem like the kind of thing that might be in a dream. Um, And so. uh, so yeah, from the from a writing standpoint, I do really uh, really enjoy it. Um, from an acting standpoint, there's really only three performances to speak of. There's Kevin Spacey, who it took me a long time because at first I really loved him. Then I moved away from him a little bit because I thought he might be overacting. Then I came back to maybe not loving him, but but liking his choices because he's playing a character who is inherent. He's just an over the top guy. And I realized that if we look at Danny DeVito, that gives us sort of our that gives us our cues to the Kevin Spacey character and how to react mm-hmm. to him. That this is just who he is. Sometimes he plays it up, sometimes he doesn't. Um, and you just kind of have to take him with a grain of salt. And so I feel like Kevin Spacey. First off, I'd be fascinated to see him play this role on stage mm-hmm. because I think then some of the overacting elements might be uh, diminished um but yeah he's a natural the- he's a naturally theatrical actor and so sometimes he can be a little big mm-hmm. um uh but it eventually didn't bother me and and it didn't rob the character of depth um and also he's just not that likable uh, that likable of a character and so having him be this big thing if he was doing that and trying to get our sympathy and it's like okay well you're you're at cross purposes here. Yeah. But the fact that he's big and is supposed to be a little grating, he is, again, he's basically in many ways, he's the character teach from American Buffalo, Hmm. um, kind of obnoxious and pleased with himself and that kind of thing. Um, Peter Facinelli plays Bob, the young guy. And I think he does a, I think he does a very good job of, uh, he might be a little, he might play up the naivete a little bit, but not that much, really. He just seems like a guy who has not uh, experienced a lot, but he is married, and he seems genuinely married. He seems like a mm-hmm. guy who hasn't been married that long, but I don't know. He seems like... It's hard to explain what I think about that character. I There is depth to him, but the mm-hmm. nature of the character is that he doesn't have a lot of depth. Yeah. And I think Peter Facinelli plays both of them. I don't. I don't love the performance, but I will say he gets something right in it that I've complained about before in Christian movies, which uh, specifically when 
a non-Christian is playing a Christian, they often do this weird, like, otherworldly glow thing about yeah. them, which we talked about when we talked about uh, the rapture. Yeah. Um, but he's not, he's not doing that. He's not, like... He's still acting like a regular person. Like he's, yeah. it's clear that he's kind of like whitewashed and, and, you know, like doesn't, you know, he says he's a Baptist. So kind of all the things that go with that, no dancing, no drinking, all everything mm. like that. So, um, while that does set him apart, he doesn't feel like he's not a real person, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a mistake that, uh, someone who's not a Christian given a part to play as a Christian often makes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, and that's the thing is often in a Christian film, when you get a Christian playing a Christian, they try to make that character seem maybe not all the time, but often try to make the the characters seem almost flawless. Mm -hmm. Um, and just that's often the way they're written in Christian yeah, films, unfortunately. Yeah. And just like there's just a nobility to them all the time. Whereas this character, he does feel real. He feels like people that you've probably known in your church, probably somebody that you've been uh, in your church and in your life. Um, and so I like his performance. But for me, the crowning achievement of the Big Kahuna is Danny DeVito's performance. Now. These days, people know Danny DeVito from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> I know. And knowing that, I'm watching this movie and I'm like, what restraint he's playing this yeah, part with. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And also, here's a fun thing. He played the penguin. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems so far, not just because of the makeup and stuff, but like this seems like so far away from the type of characters he often is called to play. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I just really love it because he... I mean, he himself, he looks kind of funny. He's a short guy. I actually, I, I wouldn't even say, I wouldn't say I met him, but I talked to him briefly and shook his hand. And what I like to say is imagine, try to imagine how short Danny DeVito is. Okay. He's shorter than that. (laughs) Um, it doesn't matter how short you think he is. He's shorter than that. Um, by probably about two inches. Uh, he just has a, almost a comical look to him. And so for him to play a character, that is very weighed down and exhausted and all that, like, and do it convincingly and make you forget that this is the guy who so often is required to be over the top and crazy. Yeah. Um, is, is simply, and, and, you know, his character is, is definitely the, the emotional core of the film. And he carries that. I'd say completely, you know, yeah, um, he's he has a, to be kind of like the neutral balance between these two. So to yeah. be the, uh, yeah, to be the the um, uh, to be the moral compass of the film, maybe, but mm-hmm. also the uh, what am I looking for? I guess the mediator, maybe. Oh, sure, absolutely. Those are those are not typical Danny DeVito roles. But what I like, and this actually probably speaks to just the way the character is written, what I like is that the character is not merely that. Because when you're no. the moral compass of the film, then basically all you are is a representative of something. Right. If you're a mediator, you're just a mouthpiece. Then, yeah. And if you're a mediator, you're just defined by the other two characters. He is a full, fully developed character mm-hmm. um, and somebody who's really going through some rough stuff. Yeah. Um, and he has 
and I mean, he's, he's, you know, definitely, he definitely has, I'm, I'm not, you know, when you say mental illness, like there's an assumption that we're talking about a beautiful mind or something like that, but it could just be something like depression or maybe even a, a low level, uh, bipolar or something like that because over the course of the film he has moments where he seems genuinely happy but other moments when he seems just really mournful Mm -hmm. uh and that sort of thing and so it's just a it's a very well written character and i think he hits every note correct sometimes the film does not do right by him Mm -hmm. but i think he himself delivers one of my favorite supporting performances uh, of all time and i'm even reluctant to say it's it's supporting um yeah but but I'll go ahead and say that. So, uh, but so let me ask you this just, so we've talked about the different elements of it. What did you just think of the movie in general? And you can incorporate the way it explores its themes, which we'll get to in a moment. But what did you just think of the movie itself? I think I had a positive response to it. And as a whole, um, I think it doesn't go exactly where you think it's going to go, which is interesting. Um, I think, I think it could end with a couple more obvious endings, but doesn't. Um, I like what the relationship between Kevin Spacey and uh, Danny DeVito's characters turns out to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think some of their scenes together were actually my favorite. Yeah, um, there's something about like a a history between characters that if you get the right actors in there, they can, they can really show that. Right. And I, I didn't enjoy the scenes as much where Kevin Spacey's being kind of bombastic, mm-hmm. but then given that, I feel like that made the later scenes more effective. Yeah. If you know what I'm saying? So that after we've seen that this is kind of his, this is kind of his face as a businessman is to be the, uh, you know, the loud, the, the loud mouth. Yeah. Um, then when he lets that down for a minute for the benefit of, of, uh, Danny DeVito's character. Yeah. Phil. Yeah. Um, then it, it means more. Yeah. And yeah, I, what I, what I do think that it's hard, it's always hard to separate the material from the execution, uh, in, in films like this, because, you know, there are moments when I think, oh, it really, the way it takes its time and just lets the actors breathe and lets them explore the relationship in looks and stuff like that. Well, mm-hmm. that is a director's choice, but it is also an actor's choice and a writer's choice and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and an editor's choice, frankly. Um, so, yeah, uh, the way that it really explores the relationships, because that's the thing. I mean, it's, the film has a definite theme, it has a definite message, but along the way, there are other things to really enjoy. And for me, like you said, the relationship between Larry and Phil um, are is, is particularly meaningful, I think. So, okay. Um, we did want this episode to be kind of short, so we'll actually move into sort of discussing the theme a little bit. Um, so you do have this character, Bob, who is, who is a Christian. He's outspoken about it. He doesn't push too hard, but once it's out there, the other guys, particularly Larry, doesn't really let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have actually experienced that myself. There was a, I used, 
years ago I used to work at a post-production house and everybody there was very nice, but they did know that I was Christian. And uh, they did seem to define me by that, which is, you know, that's fine. I define myself by that. But the way they did it somehow bothered me. Mm -hmm. Uh, One guy who was very nice uh, and a guy that I always got along with very well, um, he... For like Christmas, he bought me a giant Bible. Now, the thing is this. He rightly assumed I already had a Bible, at least one. Uh, but this one had uh, illus- like illustrations, and it was basically printed by like a non-Christian. But the Bible itself was – there's no different translation. But he incorporated like these – almost like these etchings uh, of like – various characters from the Bible and stuff into it. They were really beautiful. Hmm. Um, but I mean, part of me is just like, okay, I guess you <laughs> bought me a Bible because I guess that's who I am to you. Uh, but then he explained it to me a little bit more, but it did seem almost patronizing or condescending a little bit. Uh, yeah. and I, but maybe, it, but you know, in, in honest, in, in all honesty, when I think of who this other guy was, the guy that bought it for me, he was a super nice guy and he thought, Hey, you like this. Here's a, not even a different version of it. Here's a, a variation of it that you might find interesting. And indeed I did. Um, so, the, so let me ask you this then. I, I just bought a, I have a friend who's Jewish and I bought him a yarmulke for his birthday. Is mm-hmm. that, is that a no? Should I not have? Yeah. But does it have like a, is it like a special kind of yarmulke? Well, it's got a star of David on it. Okay. I like that. Right. And a menorah. Yeah. yeah. It's got coming it out of the top of it. Right. Yes. It spins. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> imagine that yeah <laughs> it's like the least sensitive uh, maybe not the least sensitive i'm sure i could make that worse there's but, i'd uh, say maybe a f- there's a couple ways to make it worse but <laughs> but that would be a pretty terrible um but that's the thing so while this it, guy it, i don't think was actually patronizing larry i think actually is yes um yeah. and maybe patronizing isn't the word but certainly condescending mm. i mean boiling a person down to that one thing that's all that's all you can see and then that's the only thing you can identify them in them um that's kind of what larry does here which i hadn't thought about it but it's kind of interesting considering the way the film winds up Mm -hmm. yeah and so well okay well uh i'll let you unpack that a little bit okay um by the end of the at the end of the film like we said um, Bob comes back to the hotel room to find that the others are upset with him when he says he didn't talk to them. And he didn't talk at all about the job. He didn't talk about the industrial lubricant. Right. He, didn't, he didn't talk about business. He talked about Jesus. And um, they're both upset. Uh, Phil, Danny DeVito's character, is more resigned that it's going to be okay. This wasn't good, but it's going to be okay. Larry is angry. Mm-hmm. Um, to the, to the point of fisticuffs. Indeed. I'd say. Um, so they, it leads to a physical altercation. Larry leaves. And afterwards, Danny DeVito takes a, min- a minute. Danny DeVito, Phil takes a minute to say to Bob, here's why that was wrong yeah and would you like to read that off maybe for context so there's 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 a lot of back and forth there they talk about the nature of character which is referenced something that was earlier in the film um but ultimately the 
the line in which everything is basically declared, Phil says, it doesn't matter whether you're selling Jesus or Buddha or civil rights or how to make money in real estate with no money down. That doesn't make you a human being. It makes you a marketing rep. Uh, rep. Now, I will actually interrupt this for a moment to say that uh, that Bob felt that uh, talking to this, this potential client about lubricants, he thought that was insincere, that he was using it, that he would be using a genuine connection to sell something. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought that was insincere, but he thought that, you know, he'd rather relate to him as a human being, which meant talking about Jesus and other things that are important to him. Uh, and so when Phil says doing this doesn't make you a human being, it makes you a marketing rep. He's referencing this defense that Bob has. Hmm. So he says, if you want to talk to somebody honestly, as a human being, ask him about his kids, find out what his dreams are just to find out for no other reason. Because as soon as you lay your hands on a conversation to steer it, it's not a conversation anymore. It's a pitch and you're not a human being. You're a marketing rep. So that is the that is kind of the essence of of the film, and I think there are a lot of other things explored. But I, that is, it's towards the end of the film. The character Phil doesn't really speak his mind that much. Mm-hmm. So for him to be doing so means we need to sit up and pay attention. Yeah, and so this is where we are. Yeah. Well, that that gave me the th- the thought if uh, if Larry treats. Treats see, sees Bob as this thing. He's a Christian and sees him only as that. Then he's not really approaching him honestly either, or right. really as a person. But um, there is there is a moment after the uh, aforementioned fisticuffs. Hmm. Um, Larry stands up and immediately apologizes, and he says, "I'm sorry." He goes, "Forgive me, Bob." For acting as though I was your father. And yeah. if I remember something, I believe he says something. He's like, I'm just trying to show you a little, uh, give you a little something of, of what I am. Yeah. And it's literally what you're talking about. He yeah. only saw Bob as this thing. Right. And was trying to put himself onto him. Yeah. But the difference is when he realizes how far he's gone and how he wanted Bob to have only the priorities of Larry he recognizes that he was doing the same thing and apologizes and asks for forgiveness and then calls attention to what he has done. Yeah. And when, and then he leaves Bob, however, does not recognize that mm-hmm. doesn't recognize what he did because of the nature of what it was that he was selling for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, so that is, yes, that is interesting. And I don't know if I've actually, if I've ever actually thought that before yeah. that you have two guys doing a very similar thing, but with different, responses mm-hmm. and actually bob's response is one of the reasons why um phil says a very uh, i think a very damning thing in which he says he says do you have any character at all and he doesn't say and he's not saying it in an insulting way because it is reference to a conversation they'd had earlier i think i think what he said because I, I just watched I'm, I'm pretty sure he says he says, you don't have any character at all. He says, I, I think he says, he I says, don't think you have any character at all. He says, if you want, if you want my honest opinion, Bob, you do not. Yeah. And I don't remember. I think he gives an explanation. Well, he, he then says, because, because I remember I like this line. He said, uh, you haven't, 
you don't have enough regrets yet. Yeah. And Bob counters that by saying, well, you said that you're saying I have to do things to regret first before I can have any character. Yeah. And Phil kind of gives him this, you're so young look yeah. <laughs> and says, no, you've done things that you regret that you should regret, but you don't yet. Yeah. You just don't know what they are. Right. Yeah. It's, and it is a, I mean, it's in many ways a devastating line if you're Bob. Yeah. Um, and you know, and it, it makes, cause that's the thing. I mean, when I first saw this film, it was 14 years ago. I was, I was very young. Yeah. And while I responded to uh, Danny DeVito and Kevin Spacey, when it, the fact is, I was probably way more like Bob at the time. I know that there are things that I've said as a function of expressing my faith when I was younger that I regret so much now because I know it was hurtful and I didn't see it as hurtful at the time. And I wish I could go back and make it right and make that not happen, but I know that I can't. And actually, that's a big part of the film as well, as Phil starts talking about the nature of regret. Um, and so even now, when I watch The Big Kahuna, which I haven't in a while, but when I watch it and I see that moment, I mean, I cringe a little bit. And maybe everybody does, because quite possibly everybody has been Bob at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and I cringe a little bit and just, and it makes me a little bit uncomfortable because I feel like I'm being taken to task by the concept of wisdom. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. I'm glad that you, that you responded to that, to that ending. Um, because yeah, I usually don't like it when a film just declares its themes, but there it's written fairly well and it's delivered very well by Danny DeVito. And I mean, that's more common, I think in a play. That's true. Yes. I mean, in a lot of older theater, they had a character that was literally, <laughs> that was just the mouthpiece for the, mm -hmm. for the, uh, for the author. I think it's, I know Shakespeare did that some, but, uh, I, I was in a Moliere play in college and that was one of the things is that every one of his plays has a character that's just him that just says whatever the author thinks. So. No, that's funny. <laughs> Yeah, I was in uh, Skin of Our Teeth by Thornton Wilder, and then I had a and I had a large part in that, but I had a very small part in Our Town. And Thornton Wilder tended to, I mean, with Our Town, you've got the stage manager, but then you have a number of characters in Skin of Our Teeth that just say, it, they just put it all right out there, but yeah. it's just, it's also clever and delightful and <laughs> eccentric that nobody notices. Yeah. So I guess all, all that's to say that it's a little more accepted in theater, so I feel like I, I forgive that a little bit, knowing that it's based on a play. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, that's the thing is I, I keep returning to Danny DeVito, but that's the thing. If none of what we have said about the film sounds interesting to you, the listener, I would acknowledge, I would advise you to watch the movie anyway, just so that you can see a different side of Danny DeVito than you usually get to see. Yeah. Um, because he really does. It's weird. It's like he's chewing the scenery with subtlety, <laughs> you know? Like, he really understood, all right, I've got a line in which I'm just declaring the theme. It's not very often you get a line like that and have to sell it in a real way. How do I do it? Mm -hmm. and, he, and I think he does it wonderfully. And so so what we're talking about here, you know, to go back to the idea of, of the yellow signs and what Bob is is doing, this idea of evangelism and, and sharing the gospel with people. Now, this is an episode, frankly, that could this is a topic that could go into a series of episodes. So we're going to be summing it up and it's, and we're not going to do a great job with it. Um, 
but what I will say is, uh, so I'll, I'll quote a couple of, uh, Bible verses. First is, uh, first Corinthians nine twenty two. uh, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Uh, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. All right. Now, first Peter three fifteen. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Okay. So both of these are about when you're talking to somebody that is not a Christian, meeting them where they are. Now here's, okay, meeting them where they are, really listening to them, seeing what their life is about, you know, literally becoming weak when you're faced with somebody that is weak. Now that's all well and good, but let me ask you this in both of those Bible verses. It's okay. So let's see. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some, you know, we're talking about becoming all things to all people and, and relating to people where they are but doing it with this thing in mind. So let me ask you this. Is it even possible to evangelize, to preach the gospel? You could listen to this person all day long and genuinely listen and relate to them on a human level. But if you have that in the back of your mind, then you might even with that in, you know, indiscernible way, you might be steering the conversation because you know where you want to end up. You could be listening the whole time, but maybe you ask one question and maybe the wording of that question was so that this person, so that you could eventually get here. Maybe you don't just come out and share it and interrupt the person or whatever, but you, you know, an argument could be made that you are manipulating them in a very subtle way. So it's a question of whether you whether you you're diverting from this idea of asking about somebody just to ask, just to be invested in them. Right. Um, and instead asking for the purpose of, of getting that in. Yeah. Is it, that's, that to me is the big question. Okay. I'll, I'll bring up uh, the yellow signs. Now, everybody at comic con knows about them, but then my co-host David Bax of battleship pretension, he told me a story about standing in line for something. I don't remember what it was, but you people were standing outside. It might have been Hall H. I don't know. And it was hot. It wasn't crazy hot, but it was hot. And there was this other group of Christians that had cold water bottles, and they would just give them out to the people in line, saying, hey, you look like you're thirsty. Here's, a, here's some cold water for you. And people were very appreciative, and they said, and they said here's our card. We have a booth in the mezzanine. And it was a Christian group. Now, here's the thing. They made an infinitely better impression. But in the end, I'll bet there were some people, probably not as many, but I bet there were some people who thought, oh, I get it. There's a catch. Mm. And an argument could be... No such thing as free lunch. Right. Like, there could be an argument made that if these guys really wanted to minister to these people where they were, they'd give them the water, the end. 
I don't think that. I think they. I think these guys who we actually, you and I actually went and met, and they mm-hmm. were super nice guys. Yeah. Um, geeky guys for God. Is geeky guys for God is the organization, and yeah, I del- it's delightful. <laughs> and so, I think they found. I think they found a nice middle ground, which was, you could look at that long line of people, and say, they're not going anywhere. Time to minister, mm. and then just go up and say, "Hey, have you heard about Jesus Christ?" The answer is going to be yes, by the way. Um, <laughs> but like, it could be that, and that, and basically at that point, people are like you're literally interrupting me for this, and that's the end. You could also give them the water and walk away. In which case, they're like, "Who was that? Who was that masked man mm-hmm. who gave me this water?" Um, and they get nothing out of it. I, sorry, they get water out of it. They, that's no small thing. You know, they feel blessed in that moment. They may not phrase it that way, but that's how they feel. Then there's another option, which is you give them the water and then you say, have I told you about Jesus Christ? And then, then they're in a conversation that they didn't want to have. And by accepting the water, they're in this conversation. That definitely, I think that feels like a bait and switch. Mm-hmm. So I think geeky guys for God, I think they did it about as well as you can, which is looking at people, assessing what they genuinely need, providing that sometimes they might need an ear. Sometimes they might need water. Sometimes they might need food or money or whatever. Providing that and then saying, and then there might be some people who say, well, why did you do this? And you say, because I believe I'm supposed to based on this, you know, and that's why I like this verse where it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be proactive, but I think this is a situation which is here's the water. Maybe you're wondering why here's my card. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is a good, as opposed to the, the yellow signs who just, are first off they're leading with you know I, I do understand that if you're going to seek out god you at least you first need to understand your own culpability and that sort of thing right but they're leading with something that's just going to make them sound a very specific way and they're doing it in a way where it's like hey you didn't agree to hear this but i don't care yeah you know it's also all- that that's almost never the if you go by the whole what would jesus do thing mm-hmm. whenever jesus encounters people that he doesn't know or even the you know disciples who he's going to have a mm-hmm. lot of very who's gonna have a lot of hard things to say to uh he doesn't greet them with repent now right. get over here um he 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 is loving initially to them absolutely it's funny you should bring up jesus maybe it's not because he's a christian <laughs> podcast um he tends to come up yeah. very often so as always when we relate well when we do anything and but also when we relate to other people we go back to Jesus and say, okay, what would Jesus do? So I looked up a list of Jesus assorted miracles and I wrote down. Now a lot of them fit into larger categories. So I, I summed a lot of them up and almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them involved serving somebody. Mm -hmm. And he almost always served the person first. So here's, okay. So we've got the feeding of the 5,000. Now, admittedly, these were people that came to hear him, but he could have just said, well, they're here to, they're here to hear me. So really I'm just going to talk. I will feel, I will feed their spirits, but he didn't, he did that certainly, but he fed their body too. So, uh, the huge catch of fish, 
that is that speaks to an economic and uh, financial and professional need um, in which uh, through uh, there's a miraculous net full of fish that uh, that uh, the fishermen catch uh, turning water into wine. I love that one. I never understood it when I was a kid. It is the most low stakes miracle. No, me wrong. It's miraculous, <laughs> but it's so low stakes. No one's going to die. Yeah. No one's going to go hungry. No one's even going to be thirsty. <laughs> it's not like it's water from nothing. It's literally, hey, we're at a party and we're all out of wine. And this is what's going to, you know, and it's a party and we're enjoying ourselves. But now this thing is gone. It's like, all right, well, here, enjoy. Yeah. That's the first one, too, isn't it? I think that's it's, his first yeah. miracle. Uh, and it so, like, think of it. It's not always, you know... raising Lazarus from the dead. Sometimes it's, I'm going to keep this party happy. And that's it. Mm. That's astounding to me. Uh, Curing leprosy, healing the centurion's servant, casting out demons, healing the blind, healing the disabled, and of course, raising the dead. Now, in each of those, he sees what the person needs. Sometimes it's super obvious. This guy's got leprosy. No one wants to be around him. And he goes to that person and, Here's what it is, you know, he hears what it is they need, and he provides that. Um, and so when I said that from an evangelical standpoint, like, assessing what somebody needs, it might not be one conversation. You might not be able to figure out what it is they need. So what, the, what does that mean? That means establishing a genuine relationship. Mm. And that means opening yourself up, too, by the way. Um And so, you know, when Phil says, if you want to talk to somebody honestly as a human being, ask him about his kids, find out what his dreams are. And then he says, just to find out for no other reason. Now, of course, we do have another reason, but that reason might not come up right away. That might not come up for a while. Mm -hmm. Right now, what does this person need? They might just need someone. They might just need a shoulder to lean on. Yeah. And I, and I can do that. Yeah. And then maybe sometime in the future, if they ask, or if I feel close enough to volunteer the information, then I will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, one, and of course, among my favorite stories from the Bible is the story of Zacchaeus, which I have in front of you. And I've read everything up until now, so you have to read it. All right, sure. Uh, this is from Luke 19. It's verses 1 through 10. Says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. All right. So, it's not always going to be lepers and stuff like that. Zacchaeus was a hated man and probably didn't want to be. I don't know a lot of people that want to be hated or okay with being hated. Um, 
And what I like, and in this case, what Zacchaeus needed was just somebody to acknowledge that he was a person Mm. and that, and to reach out to them in a relational way. And what I like about it is that it's not merely the assessment of that need. It's that, you know, we can be as Christians and as people, we can be bold. It's not all about just sitting back and waiting for somebody to say, hey, what makes you so different? Mm Because the chances are we're not that different, really. (laughs) Um, You know, you don't always get your mother, Teresa. Sometimes you wind up with a Tyler and Josh. Um, (laughs) And so we can be bold. But and in this case, Jesus was bold by saying, come down. I'm going to your house. Like, that's a really bold thing to say. (laughs) But it's but that's the thing. He's bold in how he ministered to this man. You know, uh. I will I tell that story. I won't. Sorry. There was a recent there was a recent situation in my life where I needed to be bold, uh, and I was, and I hated it, and it wasn't <laughs> fun. Um, but I felt like it was a thing I needed to do. Um, mm-hmm. And if you ask me to do it again today, I might not. Frankly, <laughs> um, it's a ve- that's the thing is. As scary, like it can be very scary sharing the gospel, but it can be scary anytime you step out on a on a ledge for another person because they might yeah. reject you, no matter what it is you're trying to do for them. And so, um, so I feel like we'll we'll probably start wrapping up right now. But what a, you know, I, I've been talking a lot about evangelism. Um, do you have any you know, any stories or any opinions from your own life about this? Um, because you know, not to not to like call attention to this, but we had very different types of growing up experiences. I feel like I, because I moved around a lot and I went to public high schools and stuff like that, I feel like I was often exposed to large groups of non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you were homeschooled, albeit part of a, a community of homeschools, correct? So you were still interacting with other people. Yeah. So like what... And you went to a Christian college. Mm-hmm. So how does evangelism look to you uh, in your life? Mm. I mean, I've been in lots of discussions with people talking about it a lot. And the the difficult thing with it is, especially in in the context of this, this kind of discussion, is I think the way that... Danny DeVito's character is looking at it any time that you're talking about religion with somebody, you're selling it. Mm-hmm. So if the problem is selling somebody something, then I think this kind of worldview that he has will always be against evangelism. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the slope. That's the slippery slope. That's where you want to not fall into it is saying, well, we're supposed to love people and they don't want to hear about this. You know, they don't want to hear about Jesus. So, you know, they know Jesus exists. If they wanted it, they could, they could ask for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think where it breaks down because I think at some point, if evangelism is something we're supposed to do, it is something we're supposed to sell in a way. Yeah. Now sell is a negative way to say that because it makes it seem like you're giving people you're trying to get something out of it it makes it seem like you're trying to get someone to buy something that they may not necessarily want for a personal benefit Mm -hmm. so selling is really not a good 
uh, is not a proper analogy, I don't think, because if we believe in it, what, you know, if we believe in it the way, the way it is, if we present it the way that Jesus did, it, we're presenting something, um, that is that, that we don't get, get any benefit from, right. You know, we as Christians don't, it's not like each Christian secretly has a little chart in their, in their closet. That's like, Oh, I got another one today. Right. I can check another one off. That's, and, and the more you get, the more blessed you'll be. Like, right. We are already at this point my, saved. So we're not going to get more saved. Right. My heaven mansion is going to be bigger now because yeah. I got another one. Um, it's not like that at all. Like we don't, we don't gain anything from it, which I think is, is something that I think is often misunderstood in uh, by by atheists, possibly because of the way we present it. I don't, I'm not sure. sure. Um, I'm, I don't know why that why exact where exactly that misconception comes from, but that is often the misconception that we we, we want to get something out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have we as Christians have nothing to gain from bringing other people to Christ. Um, so I don't know. That's that's one thing in terms of the. Of the selling, and then I always hear people make the the you always hear Christians make the comparison. I guess the analogy that if someone were in front of a speeding train, right. would you you know if you could see that the train was coming and they couldn't see, wouldn't you want to do whatever it took to rescue them? Yeah. And while that's a little extreme, I think there is some there is something to be got from that yeah. from that analogy if if we truly believe that we have something that is the key to rescuing somebody from something terrible, Mm -hmm. um, then it, we should, we shouldn't, um, devalue the responsibility, responsibility or, um, or, or I guess the main thing is we shouldn't worry about stepping on toes in that situation. Yeah. And it's, and you know, that's, that's the thing is it is, it is something of a, I don't know. Well, there still has to be that, that balance there because then, um, if you then talk about the yellow sign people, uh, while they might in their minds think be, be, they may be thinking that train analogy, like here, these people are, are, they're on the bullet train to hell and we, we, we have a chance to do something to save them. We've got to be out there. We've got to get their attention. Uh, th- there's something good behind it, but they're certainly not doing it with gentleness and respect, as right. it says in this passage from First Peter. Right. Um, there is no, there's no attempt to be to be loving to these people. Um, it's more alarmist than anything, um, and so I, th- I think that's where you've got to figure out that balance. You've got to figure out that balance between yelling at people and, and letting it go. And I think, I think a big part of it is recognizing an opportunity when one is presented to you, because Mm -hmm. here's the other thing that gets me about the story of the big kahuna is that yes, he is, uh, Bob has been faced with this huge client and, He's talking with the client about Jesus because to him, that's what it needs to be. But what about Larry and Phil? You know, like they are also people that are now aware that you're a Christian. Right. And when you, and you're literally putting your, I'm talking to you as if you're Bob. So just try to be <laughs> Peter. Okay. Um, that That's uncanny listeners. 
I wish this were a video podcast. You should have seen that face I just did. It was just like him. Um, But like, they now recognize that, okay, he has these beliefs. That's great. He has put his beliefs and the spreading of his beliefs, which are um, important to him and I understand, but like he's put those above my job, above my livelihood and above his own. Now, if he wants to do that with his own, more power to him. But in the end, he's saying that I'm not important. He's saying that minister, you know, ministering to this other guy is important. That's fine. But I'm right here. And that's, the, and I feel like that's the thing is, is a lot of people I know that I, I myself, you know, I, I, I will sometimes think of, you know, the listeners and like, okay, how can I reach the listeners? How can I do that? Meanwhile, there are people in my own life, Christian and otherwise, that need things. It could be they need, you know, emotional support, financial support, and I might be in a position to give it, but I'm so focused on everyone else, and it's like you can't get everyone else. And sometimes God puts a person very directly in your life for a reason. And so that's one of the things that frustrates me about Bob is that who knows? The client that he's talking to could become a Christian. Wouldn't that be amazing? Mm-hmm. But he also, in the process, could be could have driven Bob and Phil further away from it. Yeah, and so you know, so it seems like a wasted opportunity. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's 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 hard to say. And that's yeah. and that's the thing is to go back to something that Phil was saying is, you know, I'm not sure if I agree with you that he sees any talk of religion as selling. He, I think he I think he would probably say. Um, initiating talk about religion would be selling because he does say uh, as soon as you lay your hands on a conversation to steer it it's not a conversation anymore it's a pitch so he, I think he's saying that you know I don't think he has any problem I mean he says Jude, Jesus Buddha civil rights or how to make money in real estate I don't think he has any he probably doesn't have any problem with civil rights or Jesus or Buddha or any of these other things in itself but I think his issue is you know don't don't be insincere and and act as though you're only interested like you're actually interested in this person but you're actually more interested in getting that tally like you were talking about and i think that's i think that's it's something we say on the show a lot is seeing other people as people yeah and that's what jesus did first in every sense and chances are if you're actually listening to what this other person needs and listening to just who they are chances are the opportunity whether they ask or it just organically comes about in conversation it will happen but if you just say here let me tell you about this okay great see you later Mm -hmm. that person could not feel less important to you in that moment in my opinion well i i agree with with the sentiment that treating people as as a tally mark or thinking of people only in terms of like can I change this person is, is not right. I think Mm -hmm. that's, I think that's ignoring someone's humanity, but I, I, I do still think that, that the idea that you can't turn a conversation anywhere without it being a sales pitch. uh, I think that simplifies the issue. And I think if you go by that rule, you could say that Jesus, a lot of times heals somebody then he then he yeah. sells them Christianity by saying go and sin no more or something like that. You know, I wonder if some of it has to do with the fact that, I mean, we're talking about a conversation, 
And if I were to, you know, if you and I were to have a conversation, it would not be just me asking you questions. That's the thing. I Some of it would come back to, well, here's who I am. Right. By and nature you, of the way a conversation is, it can't ever be no one steers it. And you just right. kind of like wait until the other person says something and then you yeah. talk about it. Then the other person's steering it. Then like one or the other person always has to steer a conversation. They don't happen without people uh, giving them, giving it some kind of inertia. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah. And people will volunteer information about themselves. Um, and they'll probably lead with the most important piece of information, or at least one of the, one of the top three or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is one of the reasons why, all right, this is, I've, I don't think I've ever really put this out there. Uh Oh, and this is something for my friends and probably for you too. Okay. It is why for a long time, and I still do it a little bit now, uh, I will lead with the question, what's your story? Oh, yeah? It's a very, or what's your deal? It's a very vague thing, and it tends to put people on the offensive, uh, on, <laughs> on the defensive. Uh, and I get that, which is why I stopped doing it. But I always like to see how people, what people responded with first. Hmm. Because I was just like, huh, okay. That's not to then sum them up, but like, all right, that is when faced with this vague question, they're leading with, and it could be, it was job, spiritual life, church they go to, marital status, where they're from. Like it was a number, everyone had a different answer (laughs) and I found it interesting. That is interesting. Now people often were very angry at me for for leading with that question, but, um, which is why I stopped, but it, it was more of an experiment than I ever let on. Maybe the nature of the question is a little bit, uh, yeah. What's your deal in your face? (laughs) But at the same time, I, I feel like there is a value in the, in one of the, one of the motives behind it, yeah. which is to allow people to say what they want to about themselves. Right. Um, I feel like that's, I feel like that's fantastic advice for getting to know people in general. Ask about other people because everyone, everyone loves to talk about themselves. Mm-hmm. And if you get two people going into a conversation, both of them desperately wanting to talk about themselves, it, you, you just both feel frustrated trying, trying to get your piece in there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to have a conversation with someone and ask about them and listen about them, you're going to have a much better conversation with somebody. You're going to get to know them better. That's yeah. And that's the thing is if you're really engaged in a conversation, maybe this speaks to what, what the character Phil is talking about. If you're really in a conversation, this will happen. Not because you're saying, I got to do this, but because they'll just want to know about you and Mm -hmm. you'll want to know more about them and you'll just arrive at this place. Mm -hmm. You can only ask somebody their hopes and dreams and what drives them for so long before they ask you in theory. Um, Everyone, (laughs) we do live in Hollywood. (laughs) Um, So, uh, but yeah, so, and that's the thing is I feel like there is no inherently right answer to this because I think it's also different for every person. I think everybody has a different evangelism style. That's one thing that I wanted to, I wanted to touch on too, which is that uh, not, not only do we all have different evangelism style evangelism styles, but I think we have different evangelism responsibilities. Mm -hmm. I think a a minister and a missionary have different evangelism responsibilities than we do. than than we do. Well, you and I do specifically because neither of us are called to that. Um, If a missionary goes to let's say India, they're there for the specific purpose of witnessing to people. Right. So while they should serve first and, and touch people's lives first as Jesus did, they are first ask questions later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, they are there for the purpose of speaking of, of ministering to people about Jesus. So eventually if they don't 
steer conversations in that direction, then they're not doing the job that they, that they're there to do. And that's the other thing is there are some people who the job they have, the, the, the life that they live, or maybe even where they are, it just not even lends itself. It demands this. If you, if you meet somebody and you know, they're a pastor, then the context is for this conversation is already established. Right. So, yeah. So I think it's, you know, if you are, if you're a pastor or, or a missionary who's reluctant to start up a and conversation. And you're just going to wait for somebody else to <laughs> yeah. ask you, like, hey, have you ever heard about that God guy? What's the whole deal with that? Now, it is possible they will ask you mm-hmm. uh, because you're right there. That's true. But, um, and they know why you're there. But, um, but, yeah, I think that is true. I think it's different for everybody. But I think first and foremost, uh, a heart for other people, not merely for – and I, I say merely. This is, not, this is not a small thing. But not merely for the, the state of their souls – but of course, that's a giant thing. But also their current quality of life. I feel like if you lead with those two considerations, I think you'll probably be okay. You'll probably make some mistakes here and there. Everybody does. But I think you'll probably be okay. Because if you're genuinely interested in, like, God loves this person, wants to save this person, eventually you'll get to a point of, okay, well, who is this person that God loves so much? I want to know. Yeah. And when that happens, I think uh, you're probably on the right track. Yeah. If we want to go into the the theology of it a little bit, I think we've touched a little bit before on um, the idea of both the physical and the spiritual being equally important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, Gnosticism is that idea that nothing, everything temporal is, is unimportant. Yeah. And that everything spiritual is much more important. And that's not that's not Jesus's message. Right. Um, that was an early church heresy for a reason. And, uh, so the, uh, the, if you're treating both things as important, then the personality of a person is important. That person's like you said, they're the state of their life, whether they're in need of something or whether Mm -hmm. they're, whether, uh, um, they have a, physical disability or ailment or something like that. That's just as important to who they are. And that needs to be tended to just as much as their spirit needs to be tended to. And you might be the only person in a position to tend to it. Cause it's always possible to think, well, I can't really do it. I'm sure someone will come along. It might just be you. So, you know, and that can go for any number of things. You and I have said a couple of times we've made jokes about, yeah, people have already heard of Jesus. It's fine. And admittedly, in tw- in 2014, it's not a bad assumption, but it is astounding to me how many people I've talked to. And yes, of course, they've heard of Jesus. They've heard of Christianity. They know the basics. They've heard he died for our sins. You'd be amazed how many people don't actually know what that means. Yeah, or I- I've been amazed having some conversations with people who had didn't grow up in the church right. like I did. And I just there are so many things that I take for granted that people understand, which they've just never heard before. So yeah. while probably in modern day America, most people have heard of Jesus, it's kind of impossible not to. Yeah. It's like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Everyone's heard of Frank Sinatra. Jesus yes. is just like Frank Sinatra. Imagine if at. Frank Sinatra drank less... And beat people less and, and sang less. And was fully man and fully God. Yes. You and you Jesus. have Jesus. <laughs> I might um, be and didn't wear a tux all the time, <laughs> but instead like robes and such. 
but yeah, it, it, Jesus is a, is, has been a part of culture for long enough, especially Western culture that it's hard to not know about him at this point, but to know a lot of the details, to know a lot of, um, to know a lot of the important things that, uh, that, that make it important to know why it's important is a whole other deal. Yeah. Which yeah. actually makes the Frank Sinatra uh, uh, analogy not terrible. If you've never heard a Frank Sinatra song, you'd be like, might be like, why do people make such a big deal out of yeah. this guy? Oh, that happens with Citizen Kane all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Okay, we'll end on this, listeners. If you are listening to this, you are likely a film fan. Think, and if you are a Christian as well, think of if we talked about God the way we talk about our favorite film. I have, since I saw, my current favorite film of 2014 is A, a Most Wanted Man, Philip Seymour Hoffman's last film, directed by Anton Corbin. Um, since I've seen it, I've said to at least five people, you've got to see it, you'd love it. Did they ask me? They didn't. <laughs> but at the same time, these were people that I was close enough with that I could do that and they wouldn't feel like I was dictating to them what they needed to do and that my opinion of them would be less if they didn't. So it is that there is a there is a context there as well. But just imagine if we spoke about God with the same amount of passion as we do our favorite films. Um, and so, but at the but at the same time, I do know that every once in a while I've run across people who do not care about movies, <laughs> and uh, and that can be hard to explain to and it can be people very, like that. It can be very hard to explain, you know. Um, but so, uh, and it's not a perfect analogy because in the end it's just like, okay, well, this person doesn't like movies. It's kind of the only thing I've got. So I guess we're done. Uh, <laughs> that can't, you can't take that attitude when it comes to Christianity. Um, but yeah. And so, uh, I feel like we've kind of jumped all over the place, uh, because that is the nature of this type of conversation. Um, but that is also one of the things that if you are a spiritual person, not even just Christian, but spiritual in general, but Christian, especially because we, we are called to reach out uh, to, to people. Um, a movie like The Big Kahuna can really make you think, and if you watch it with a group of Christians, as I have done in the past, uh, not so much a debate, but a, a real good discussion about what our responsibility is to other people, how to best go about that, uh, It can that can happen. And so I would suggest, if you haven't seen it and you're interested in this topic, Get some friends, watch it. I realize that I'm talking about this as though it were God's Not Dead, because that's exactly <laughs> what they say. Get your friends together, have a watching party at your home, or something like that. But, um, but yeah, but the diff, the difference between Big Cahoon and God's Not Dead is you and I just spent ta- time talking about like, okay, let's try and decipher what the film might mean, how that applies to our lives, and hey, look, we've come to different conclusions at times. Mm-hmm. Some of these. Christian films, you're never going to come to a different conclusion. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it, it really telegraphs. But anyway, all right. I think we will leave it there, which is good because we got to record another podcast immediately. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, if you have any questions or anything, you can email me, Tyler at more than one lesson.com or Josh, Josh at more than one lesson.com. You can find various articles and past episodes at more than one lesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. You can also uh, like us on Facebook uh, and you can sign up for our newsletter. You can. And I will say now, it's, I think it's pretty official. If you live in the Southern California area, Go to alphaomegacon.com, which is like the first ever basically Christian Comic-Con type thing. Uh, 
I just registered for an exhibitor booth there. So I'll see you there. Maybe. I don't know. It's (laughs) September 20th. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, And yeah, thank you everybody for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye.